You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? All right, that's what's up. So, uh, if you're new here, my name is Dave. I don't think we have any, any new people. I don't see anyone. Well, right on. Yeah, regardless, the notes are the same, so I'm going to start the intro the same way I have every week. Uh, we are continuing through our series this evening called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament, looking at Old Testament stories and how they all point to and foreshadow Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that everything in the Old Testament points to him, and we're seeing how that's true by looking at the most famous accounts in the Old Testament. Um, so last week, we took a look at the prophet Elijah and how he was calling down fire Uh, to consume a completely water-soaked sacrifice, and how uh, after he said a two-sentence prayer, God sent fire down from heaven, and it not only consumed the sacrifice and the wood, but also the stone that the altar was made out of, and the dust on the earth, and the water surrounding the altar is madness. This is a huge miracle uh, that Elijah had worked by God's power and grace. A huge high point, high time in Elijah's life, uh, Elijah probably felt like he was 10 feet tall and, and bulletproof. Is that a Travis Tritt song? Yes, yeah, like four people in here know what's up. Thank you very much. The, the white trash flows through me and I can't help it. Um, YouTube Travis Tritt when you get home. He's legit. Uh, anyway, uh, right, but he's probably feeling really good about himself, right? Elijah just did a huge miracle. This is good stuff. Um, you know, and, and, and we all have these high points in our lives as well. Right, like we can all kind of relate to to Elijah. Um, you know, like whenever maybe there's a, a birth in your family, or you yourself have, have a child, or it's recently happened, or you got the job that you were looking for, or money came your way that you weren't expecting, or uh, or you're having a really spiritual high time, right? Like um, like you wake up in the morning and you just you're excited to pray, you're excited to get in the scriptures, you, you you can think of people at work and you're excited to talk to them about Jesus, and you're just having a really really uh, high point, like a mountaintop experience in your life. Um, but we all know that these kinds of things can never last. These things don't last forever. Um, just like with Elijah. Um, in this evening's text, we're going to see the prophet Elijah, after this huge mountaintop experience, spiral down into a deep depression. Um, and he spirals into a depression because he feels, or I'm sorry, he begins to believe the lie that God is not at work in Israel. Right? He, he begins to feel abandoned as a prophet, like he's been a failure, and that God's not with him anymore. Um, and we're going to see in the text uh, that contrary to how Elijah feels, God is indeed always at work. And because of that, we can fight back times of depression and hold fast to the joy that we have in knowing our God and knowing that our God is co- constantly at work in all things, even when we can't see how. Right? So we, we, we most often, I would argue, suffer from depression um, at, at, the, at the deepest level because we feel as if God is not with us and that God is not doing anything in our lives. Um, I would make that argument. Um, and just so we know, whenever I'm talking about depression, I'm not talking about if you have a chemical imbalance. You know, taking depression medication is a Christian liberty issue. Uh, I'm not here to tell anyone not to do that. Um, but what, I, what I'm talking about depression is like situational pre- depression. Uh, again, like literally what it sounds like. Something bad has happened, you're in an, an awful circumstance or situation, and you find yourself down. Um, 
But we most often suffer depression because in those moments we feel as if God is absent and not doing anything. And that the situation that we're in isn't getting better because God doesn't care. And, there, and therefore there is no point in us continuing on. But the account that we're going to look at this evening with Elijah um, stares that kind of thinking in the face and just shows that it is manifestly untrue. That again, God is always at work even if we cannot see. So I, I know that a lot of people here... Um, are going through a, a lot of diverse situations, right? In, in Christian speak, we usually say that that person is in the valley, right? Referencing Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death, right? Well, I know that there are people here who are in the valley. Uh, but I also recognize that some people here are up on a high point, right? They're high up on a mountain in life. And that's okay, too. Um, but this sermon is, is for everyone. Right, regardless of where you find yourself right now, regardless of how you feel right now, this is for everyone. Obviously, uh, if you're someone who is down or frustrated or depressed in the situation that you find yourself in, it's clearly for you. Uh, but if you're up on the mountain, though, right, and good for you, I'm, I'm genuinely happy for you. That is, that is great. If you're up on the mountain, uh, I want you to know, because I love you, it won't last. <laughs> Right? It just won't. Like, Christian or, un, or, or not, or unbeliever, like, this is true in general. It cannot last. It will not last because life is always up and down. I think sometimes um, in the church, uh, especially in America, I think sometimes we bought into a lie that life should mainly be up on the mountain and occasionally we're in the valley. And that's not true. Most of the time, I feel at least, we spend either like on like a plane, right, or down in the valley and occasionally we get to have those mountaintop experiences. Um, this is a really interesting way to look at it just before we, we go on. Um, the mountain won't last because God loves you too much to leave you on the mountain. It's strange, right? <laughs> God loves me too much to let me be happy all the time? That's insane. The um, reason why I say that is because we grow and mature in our faith when we experience trials, when we experience hardship, whenever we go through times that would make us depressed. And God loves us too much to allow us to continue our whole lives with a weak faith. He loves us too much for that. He wants us to experience Him and to know Him and to know His goodness and His grace. And we always have room to grow. So we're always going to have to suffer, right? Read James chapter 1 or read 1 Peter chapter 1. They say the same thing. Peter actually says, if it's necessary, you suffer, right? In order that your faith might be purified. So it's always necessary for us. All right, so again, if you're up on the high point, I want you to bear this in mind. I stole this from someone, and I can't remember who I stole it from, so it's mine now. Um, there, are, <laughs> there are three kinds of people in the world, right? There are those who are in the valley, those who just got out of the valley, and those who are getting ready to go into the valley. Right? So this is for everybody. Right? So what I want you to do is hide the truths that we're going to consider. Hide them in your heart so that you can keep your joy whenever life sucks. Right? So that, that's what we're aiming at this evening. So with that said, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hop in to some background and then the text. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for the people that are here. Holy Spirit, please draw us near. Give us malleable hearts. Give us ears to hear the message. Give us eyes to see the truth that's here. Holy Spirit, if there are unbelievers here, let them be wooed towards Christ with the truth that, that you are a God who loves your people and genuinely cares for us and you're always at work that you 
are a humble God who, who works for your people. That's, that's astounding. But God, for the believers that are here, draw us near to you that we might have joy whenever times are hard because we know that you are present. Thank you for your word and thank you for Christ crucified. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool, so some background, obviously, if you weren't here last week, here's, what, here's, here's a little bit of background for you. Uh, we just left Elijah on Mount Carmel, like I said earlier, where he had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, right? 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of Yahweh or the Lord, one prophet of God, Elijah, and that God rained down fire and proved uh, definitively that he is the only true God and that Baal is a false God and the people ought to worship Yahweh. And the people themselves, after seeing this miracle, cry out, Yahweh is God, the Lord, he is God, right? Um, and so Elijah had just been mightily used by God in an iconic moment in the Old Testament. And after that, he did another great miracle where he prayed and God restored rain after a three and a half year drought, Good stuff. So again, Elijah is up on the mountain. He's having a mountaintop experience. By the way, every time I say mountaintop, remember that old commercial where the guy says mountaintop and they throw that dart? No? I see Clifton's laughing in the back. Thank you. Uh, mountaintop. He throws it. Anyway, whatever. I thought that was funny. <laughs> the more I say it, the more I'm like starting to laugh to myself, so I wanted to put that out there. But, uh, but after God's miracle of fire from heaven... Uh, we looked at this as the last verse. We didn't talk about it much. Uh, but Elijah had the 450 prophets of Baal rounded up and slaughtered by a river. Right? Not nearly as funny as the Chris Farley River experience. But, right, so you, you would think, whatever, that was for me. You, you would think that after this miracle and after the slaughtering of the prophets of Baal, that the whole nation of Israel would repent. Right? Especially that King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who had led the nation in their idolatrous worship of Baal, that they would see their sin and turn back to the Lord. But that's not the case in the least. Right? So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. So Ahab goes back. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Note that Ahab doesn't say what Yahweh did. But just what Elijah did, he's snitching on him. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, the prophets, by this time tomorrow. And then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. That is some good bread. Right? So, and just so you know, too, Horeb is, uh, is another word for Mount Sinai. Right, so God has told him to do a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 journey to the same place where God gave the law to Moses as Moses spent 40 days 
up on the mountain with God, right? So this is an important place that God's summoning him to, right? But looking at the, the first few verse, first few verses, it's interesting because rather than repenting, Jezebel, the, the queen of Israel at the time, promises to murder Elijah for exposing the false prophets of Baal and the idolatry of Israel, right? So just real quick, this isn't a huge point of the sermon, but I, I, just, I, I can't not talk about it when it presents itself in the text. This is a great reminder for us that we should not expect an easy life as we follow Jesus, right? Like more zeal for the gospel necessarily results in more opposition from the world because the world hates the living God. I think it's a great thing for us to always keep in mind anytime we see it in the text, right? That, that we are not entitled to protection from earthly evils in the least. We're not entitled to protection from suffering or bad circumstances just because we follow Jesus Christ, right? And just because we're obedient to Christ, just because we're living a zealous life and a holy life for Jesus, doesn't mean that God is obligated to spare us from pain, like ever. God cannot be manipulated. He does what he wants. He's sovereign. He may lay suffering on us, though we are incredibly faithful. We see him do that to the prophets. We see him do that to the apostles. It's not because he hates them, but because he's working a plan through all of it. But Jesus Christ himself actually tells us to expect hatred, but that we're blessed when others hate us for his sake because they did the same to the prophets. Elijah is one of those prophets that the people hated. Um, Isaiah is another good example, too. Isaiah... Um, church history tells us that Isaiah was sawed in half by the people of Israel. Yeah, and he was a prophet, very godly guy. Um, so we're not exempt from hatred or suffering. Uh, but at the same time, this is an interesting point too. Uh, I didn't want to skip over it. Jezebel also shows us the heart of an unbeliever. Right? Like, again, God undeniably just proved that he is the only God and that they ought to worship him. He, sent, he did a miracle. He brings rain back. He sends fire down from heaven. And Jezebel doesn't care. Neither does Ahab. Right? Which tells us that no one is converted by a miracle. Right? No amount of miracles can change the heart. Right? So I just lay this out here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, and, and, you, and you tend to say, you know, there's not enough evidence. Or if you meet an unbeliever that says, there's not enough evidence. I need more evidence for the, for the validity of Christianity, for God's existence, for the truth of the gospel. Know this. No amount of miracles or evidence is going to save anybody. It's a heart condition. Jezebel hated the living God. Therefore, she hated his prophet. And nothing was going to change that except the Spirit of God working in the heart of the unbeliever. Again, look at Jesus. He, He raised people from the dead. He did miracles. He taught in a way that no one ever did. And then they said, Jesus does this by the power of Satan. Right? It's because they hated him. I was just laying that out there. I just wanted to hit those couple of points real fast. But, but Elijah, right, because of this obstinate unbeliever uh, wanting to kill him because of his zeal for the Lord, though he had done no wrong, Elijah flees for fear of, in fear of his life. He takes off running. But I think it's interesting that God never told Elijah to run. Right? In chapter 17, we see another time uh, Elijah faced off with King Ahab, and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to go outside of Israel. Right? So that's interesting that we see that in chapter 17, but in chapter 19, whenever Elijah runs away, we see no word from the Lord coming to him. Right? So Elijah should have boldly stayed and stared down Jezebel and said, Yahweh will protect me, but if he doesn't, I'm still not going anywhere, and you can slaughter me for his namesake. Right? But again, hindsight's always twenty twenty. He didn't do that. We need to cut him some slack. Elijah's a sinner. 
Right? Elijah's a human being like the rest of us. So Elijah takes off, right? He books it. And he books it to the southernmost town of Judah uh, called Beersheba, right? It's the most southern point, uh, southern town. And then not only that, but he goes on another day's journey out into the wilderness. Like homeboy is getting out of Israel as far as he can. But during his trip, Elijah's fear turns into a horrible depression. And he lays under a broom tree and he prays for death. And I just, think it's funny. Consider the irony here. If you guys know the story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, he's taken to heaven uh, in chariots of fire with horses of fire and he never dies. <laughs> he says, God kill me. Actually, not going to die ever. So I thought that was just really funny. Like I can imagine the, like the grin, like smirk on Elijah's face as he's going up to heaven. I wanted God to kill me 10 or 20 years ago. This is weird. Um, right? But again, Elijah never ends up dying, but he wants to die because he's depressed. I know some of us have felt that way. I personally have felt that way. I'd rather die than continue on. Lord, will you please just take me out of here? But why is Elijah depressed? Uh, for Elijah specifically, he's depressed because he hadn't seen the results that he had hoped to see. He hadn't seen national repentance led by King Ahab, and that's what he had been expecting. That was he, that's what he was banking on happening in Israel because of this miracle that God had, had done with the fire coming down on the sacrifice. Because he didn't see it, he felt like a complete and utter failure as a prophet. Not only that, but he felt as if God wasn't doing anything in Israel. And that because of that, there was no point in him continuing in his office of being a prophet. He despairs of life. I mean, let, let's, let's, so there's like the narrow context here. Right? But let's, let's, let's broaden this. Let's, let's broaden the scope a little bit to depression in general. Right? Uh, and I know that there are a lot of people in our church that have some stuff going on that might lead them to depression. Right? I normally don't name drop. But I, I know with Nigel's house burning down. Like, brother, I'm, I'm sure that this is a hard thing. Sure, it's a very hard thing with, with Nigel's house burning down. With I know people in our congregation that have been through surgery that find themselves incredibly upset right now with things going on with their health. I, I know that there are people who are dealing with deaths in their family, people who are dealing with illnesses where they're debilitated and can't hardly work, uh, people who's, who's, whose marriages um, aren't doing that great, right? There's a ton of marital strife. Uh, people who are looking for jobs earnestly and can't seem to find one. People with relationship issues where they're saying, God, how long until you give me a spouse? Right? Or am I with the right person? Is this person even a believer? Should I continue on in this relationship? Right? So there's a lot of, of, of reason that people might find themselves depressed here. And I, I acknowledge that. That's why I wanted to broaden this out. Right? And not just talk about depression and ministry. Because right? I love you guys and I want to I address this as a, a broad category. But we get depressed generally because things don't go the way we hoped or planned. <laughs> That's pretty much, like, at least in, in my experience, that, that's why we tend to, to spiral into depression, right? Like, I wanted X thing to happen, and I got Y instead. And my, all of who I am was, was hoping for, for the thing X to happen, and then it doesn't happen. So now I'm let down, and as I'm let down, I spiral down, again, into, into sadness and misery. So again, Elijah's depression, but depression was ministry-oriented, where he expected to see repentance, and then he didn't see it. He got impression, oppression instead. He got death threats. But again, we, we begin to despair and feel hopeless because it seems in those times that God is not doing anything. And because of that, there is no joy for, for us to have. There's no point in going on. 
because we feel abandoned by God who has allowed these situations and circumstances to befall us. So Elijah cries out to God, kill me. It is enough. That's just another way of saying, some translations say, I have had enough. He makes his complaint to God. And here, this is, this is beautiful, and I don't want us to miss it because it's so simple. How did God respond to Elijah's despondency? Verses 6 and 7 tell us, he, God gives him food, water, and sleep. Right, like I, I passed over this for like a, for the first few days I was studying this. This is beautiful. This is the grace of God manifested towards Elijah, and I don't want us to miss it. God cares for his physical needs. Though Elijah has just lodged a great complaint against God, you're doing nothing. I've had enough. I, I give up. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. God cares for him. God genuinely cares for his people when they're depressed. Right? So though Elijah deserved some rebuke here, right? He, he, he legitimately deserved some rebuke because he was not viewing his situation properly. Right? His theological lenses were skewed in this moment. But instead of giving him rebuke, which will come later, in that moment, God was incredibly kind to him. Because God loved Elijah. God actually loves him. I think that in God giving him food and water from an angel and letting him sleep for a couple of days, I feel like God is in essence saying, Elijah, you're not just a workhorse. You're not just a servant that I've sent to do my bidding. You're my son, and I actually care about you. I think that's, that's beautiful, and I think this is a great reminder for us. We are not mere servants of Christ. We are sons of God. We're not a mere servant. We're not a mere slave. Christ has taken us from being slaves to sons. God sympathizes with us in our weakness and genuinely cares for us. And the reason why I wanted to highlight that is I know that I have fallen into this pit so many times. right? And, and I fear that you guys have too. And when, what I mean is sometimes that I fear that because we know how transcendent that God is, and how powerful He is, and how holy He is, and how different from us He is, that we forget about His compassion towards us. I fall into this all the time. That, that we begin to think that when we're in despair, when we find ourselves depressed and wanting to give up, that God is furious with us. And hear me on this. Whenever we are absolutely in, in desperation, God is not a cross-armed, angry father with us. He actually loves us. Like, Please hear me on this. Jesus Christ was not sent into the world to pay our penalty for our sin because God was obligated to do that. God did that because He loved us. I don't want us to miss that. God actually loves His people. And again, I love the fact that God didn't go off on Elijah here and didn't just straight up start rebuking him. God sees that Elijah is broken at this point. And to paraphrase Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not crush. Referring to Jesus, Jesus will not crush us when we come to him and we're broken. God allows Elijah to express his sadness and his frustration to him with no rebuke, but God responds with kindness and compassion. 
Which tells me that we can be honest with God whenever we pray. We can voice our, our complaints. We can voice our concerns. We can tell Him and be real and raw with Him. He actually wants that from us. And He won't rebuke us for that unless we cross a, a line in, into sinful complaint. But again, Elijah's broken and God's kind to him. And I want us to see that. Continuing on through the text with verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God responds, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The King James calls it a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. This is, this is the meat of this whole text. It's beautiful. First thing God says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Right, which again, so God doesn't rebuke him at first, but this is a light rebuke. So God's not laying the smack down on him yet, but like he's starting to rebuke him for, you know, for, for like, what are you doing here, man? I have not told you to quit. I have not relieved you of your duty yet. Like, you say, I've had enough. You've had enough when I've said you've had enough, right? And that's clearly not it. I still have things that you're going to do, right? So God lightly rebukes him. What are you doing here? And Elijah responds. Again, I'm, I'm just trying to get the essence of what Elijah says in his complaint. I've done all that I know how to do. I've been jealous for you. And they won't repent. And I'm the only one left. And now they want to kill me. So I'm here wanting to quit because there is no point in me trying anymore. I think that's the essence of what Elijah is saying. But I see three things in Elijah's complaint to God. And I think that, that underneath them there are some questions that Elijah wants answered. Right, so bear with me on this. This is, just, this is what I see in the text. Again, test everything you hear and see if it's biblical or not. But Elijah, the first thing he says is, I have been jealous for Yahweh. I've been jealous for the Lord. So I think underneath that, he's saying, why then has the nation not repented? Why has no one turned to you? I have been so jealous for your name. With zeal, I have proclaimed faith and repentance. I have worked miracles right, by your power. I've done everything I know how to do. Why have they not repented? The second thing he says is, they've broken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They slaughtered your prophets. Underneath that, I think Elijah's saying, God, where is your justice? Where is your vengeance? Where is your zeal for your own holiness? And then he says, I, only I, am left. Why am I alone? Why am I the only one preaching this? Why do I have to preach this by myself? Why do I have no companion to help me with this? Why am I the only one left that serves you? So I think the, the, the big idea behind his complaint 
is basically, why aren't you doing anything? Why are you doing nothing? Why are you absent? Why have you abandoned me? Why haven't you protected me from Jezebel? Why? Where are you? I think if we see that, that we can all really relate to how Elijah feels in this moment. We've all had instances where we feel this way. Where are you? Where have you gone? Why aren't you caring for me? Why aren't you doing anything? And I love what God does. Elijah's a dude who has just seen some crazy miracles. So God, again, passes through with like hurricane force winds that shatter rocks. Like, I can't even imagine that. Right? But winds that shatter rocks, and God's not in that. And then earthquake, and God's not in the earthquake. And fire passes by the mountain, and he's not in the fire. But God answers Elijah not in the loud and miraculous, but he answers Elijah in a low whisper. Right, which, which some scholars argue that God didn't actually whisper to him for the rest of this because the text would make us believe that God starts talking to him again in the next verses like he always talks to him, like regular. Right, so the low whisper could mean in the silence. Charles Spurgeon said like the sound that you hear, um, like you hear like this horrible thundering of like wind and rain and lightning and then it all ends abruptly and there's just this deafening, all-encompassing silence. And God is present in that silence for Elijah. And Elijah recognizes that he is there in that silence. And I think that, that what the point, because some people, man, I just, I'm sorry I get so annoyed with, with preaching. Um, not here. Just stuff that I hear. Uh, other preachers. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. Um, we've heard this text, you know, God speaks in the still small voice, so you need to sit there and be quiet and listen for God to tell you what to do, right? Just throwing this out there, read your Bible and find out what God wants you to do, right? Because that's how God speaks to people, right? There's no still small voice where God's going to like whisper a secret to you. He's not playing the telephone game with anybody here, Um, right? But in this, in God speaking in this silence, In God being present in the silence, it's as if God is saying to Elijah, Hey, I'm not where you thought that I would be. I'm not in the loud and miraculous all the time. I am present in the silence. When it seems I'm absent, when you think that I've abandoned, I'm very much present. That's the point of the still small voice. That's the point of God's, of the low whisper. Is God saying, I am working, though you cannot see how I am working. I am here. I've not abandoned you at all. Right? So I know that this kind of sounds like a religious platitude, that God hasn't abandoned you and he's working things somehow even though you can't see it. I understand what that might sound like, but that's the truth. That's the point of this text. Right? God's working is mysterious, Right? And we often must cling to this truth, the truth that he is working, though I cannot see how. Right? Now, we live in an age of silence. Right? God does not audibly speak to anyone anymore. That would be kind of cool, but he doesn't do that anymore. Right? There are no more prophets. There are no more apostles. God is not speaking through signs or miracles anymore. God now speaks to his people exclusively through the Spirit working in the Scripture. Right? That's how God speaks to His people. So we live in an age of silence. And because of that, sometimes whenever times are hard and we feel depressed because of our situation, it's really, really easy for us to think that God isn't around and that He doesn't care. Right? If Elijah felt this way in an age where God audibly spoke and, and did miracles sometimes, and he felt as if God wasn't present, how much more so are we going to be susceptible to that kind of a feeling? 
right? That God isn't around and that he doesn't care. Right? But this text just screams to us that he is present in seemingly insignificant ways. Again, God is in the silence, right? So our God doesn't sleep, right? He doesn't sleep nor slumber. He is always active in governing the universe, always guiding things according to his plan. So literally, nothing happens by chance. Even the situation that has you depressed, It has not happened by chance. So what I think, what I can see in this text is that God is calling for us to dig our heels into the dirt and declare to ourselves when we're depressed that my God is up to something. Though I cannot see what it is. Though I suffer, He is present. And because of that, I need not despair because He is indeed working. So when we find ourselves depressed, we can remember that truth. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because as our mind changes, as we hold fast to truth, our feelings begin to change over time, though it may not be instantaneous. I think that once we've committed ourselves to this truth that God is present in, thing, in, in times where he seems to be absent, once we've committed ourselves to that truth, we can say with Paul, in 2 Corinthians, that I walk by faith and not by sight. Well, God help us. I walk by faith and not by feeling. I walk by trusting Him, not by how I feel. And I think once we get to that point where we can say, I walk by what I know to be true and what I'm trusting in and not how I feel and not what I see, then we can say when we're depressed, we can say along with the psalmist, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. What the psalmist is saying in in that verse, chapter 42, verse 11 of Psalms, he's saying, my God has not forgotten me. He is King of the universe. He is working, and I am His. And He is mine, and I am secure. My God lives, my salvation and my God. I will praise Him and put my hope in Him. Now this isn't just an ethereal concept. I want to show you this theology in action. I have a dear, dear friend who had a stillborn daughter. Almost complete nine months were done and his wife had to deliver a stillborn child. I was talking to his wife about that a couple of months ago. Like, how, how did you guys react? What, what, do you, what do you do in that moment of despair and despondency where, where you're miserable and you feel as if God has completely abandoned you? What do you do in that moment? And she told me the response of her husband was one of the godliest things I've ever heard. He, on repeat, Quoted to himself, why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. My my friend felt as if God was nowhere to be found in that moment. But he trusted that God was doing something in the midst of the situation and that he had not been abandoned. That's the only thing he held, it, held on to. That's, that's what he dug his heels into the ground with. My God is present with me, though I can't feel him right now, though my daughter is dead. I will hope in him. He is present. 
He trusted that God was doing something that we could not see. Now hear me on this. As you suffer and find yourself fighting bouts of depression, God may just be perfecting our faith. That may be it. There may not be this huge thing we can look back on 10 years and say, oh, I see what God was doing here. God may just be perfecting our faith as we suffer, but nevertheless, He is working in ways that we often can't perceive, and that's the point of the still small voice. So I think with this truth in mind, we can look our depression in the eye and say, I don't know why this thing has happened. I don't know why I'm sick. I don't know why my family is dying. I don't know why that my spouse doesn't seem to react, no matter how much kindness and compassion and and patience that I show with him. I don't know why my daughter is dead. I don't know why that my soul is in turmoil. I don't know why. But we can still have great cause for great joy in spite of it. Because our God is with us. He is not absent. He is not asleep. Rather, He is constantly working His glory in our good. Always. Always. So to be a little bit of a smart aleck, the children of God ought to be the most optimistic, annoyingly optimistic people in the world. Though there is appropriate time for us to be sad. I'm not saying that. But underneath all of that, we have great cause for joy. We ought to be the most optimistic human beings that ever walked the planet. Let's continue on in the passage, though, because God's not done with Elijah. Second half of verse 13. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel... All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So I think it's funny. Elijah completely misses the point of this still small voice, right? God says, So now, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he just voices the exact same complaint to the Lord, right? He's still upset over everything, which I think is a fair reminder for us that depression doesn't generally just lift off of us just because we have a theological truth presented to us, right? Like God teaches us how to persevere in the scripture, but the Bible nowhere gives us a magic silver bullet cure-all sentence or theology that's going to immediately lift our spirits. He doesn't do that. Uh, He wants us to push through and persevere while we're being slowly from one degree of glory to the next transformed by the truth that we are taking in. But Elijah misses the point entirely. But in response to that, God does this incredible act of grace for Elijah. They hear me on this. Don't expect God to do this for you. Right? Like, don't, don't expect God to do this. This is grace upon grace. God pulls back the curtain for Elijah and shows him what, he has been, what God has been doing behind the scenes this entire time. Right? 
So again, remember, uh, I think the questions that were underneath Elijah's complaint. God, they have slaughtered your prophets and broke your covenant. Where is the justice? And God tells him, go anoint Hazael, king over Syria. What God's saying is Hazael is going to bring war against the people of Israel. And I'm going to judge the nation at large with Hazael's army. And then go anoint Jehu. That's the commander of the army of Israel. And Jehu is going to go in and destroy Ahab's family. He's going to slaughter them. My justice is not asleep. You said, where's the justice? Because they've been slaughtering my prophets. I will answer them for their wickedness. I've been raising up two kings and you had no idea what I was doing. My justice will come. So again, if we find ourselves depressed over a wicked world that we live in, I think one of the great things we can look to, look at the book of Revelation. Where chapter 14 says that that Jesus swings a sickle across the earth and all of his elect are gathered to him. And then he has an angel swing a sickle across the earth to gather the grapes of the wicked people and then treads them in a winepress of God's wrath. We have great hope in that as we see injustice in the world. That indeed God's wrath is coming. It's not asleep. God will save his people and he will punish those who oppose him. And here he shows a bit of that to Elijah. Where's the justice? I've been raising up two kings to execute my vengeance on the people for their idolatry. I've not been doing nothing. And then he says, why am I alone? I, even I only, am left. What does God say? Go anoint Elisha to be prophet. I'm I'm raising up Elisha to take over after you're gone and to be your companion from now on. I've not left you without help. I've been raising someone up unbeknownst to you. And then Elijah says, or Elijah says again, underneath the, the first complaint, I've been jealous for you. Why has no one repented? And God says, I have saved 7,000 people for myself. You're not alone. You're not the only one who follows me. I have been working in ways that you could not see. So again, God pulls the curtain back and shows him with the two kings that are to be anointed, Elisha that's to be anointed, and the people that he has saved. I have been doing things that have been imperceivable for you, or imperceivable to you. Right? And this might sound like I'm being a little bit legal here, because I am. This gives us a biblical precedent, right? That Elijah couldn't see what God is doing, but then God shows him that he was doing all kinds of things. Elijah couldn't see because he had a limited perspective. He's a human being. He's not omniscient. He can't see all things. He doesn't know all the things that God is doing. We have the same perspective as Elijah. We can't see everything. Therefore, we can trust that God is working though we can't see. We have biblical precedent for that. That's the best kind of precedent to have when we suffer. What a glorious bedrock of hope here. God tells Elijah, I'm in the silence. And then God proves his trustworthiness in showing Elijah what he had been up to. So bearing that in mind, we ought never doubt. We ought to never fall into unbelief. And this might sound kind of funny. We can actually rebuke ourselves with this kind of a reminder whenever we feel depressed. God is indeed working. He worked in Elijah's life and Elijah had no clue. I can trust him. So I know the question now, because this is the question I asked myself, where is Jesus in this text? 
where is Christ in this text? It's kind of hard to see, or at least it was for me. I spent a good bit of time thinking about this. Where is Christ? How does this text point us to Jesus? Hear me on this. This is a better precedent than we have with anything Elijah did or anything God did in Elijah's life. I want you guys to consider the cross of Christ. No one thought that God was present doing anything when Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish rabbi of no great renown, was being nailed to a cross by the Romans under charges of blasphemy from the Jews. As Christ suffered on the cross and cried out, no one thought that God was up to anything. This was just another rebellious traitor dying. But as Christ was on the cross, God the Father was pouring out His wrath for all who would believe. Christ was absorbing the wrath of God on the cross. It was imperceivable to all. And yet there was a great and glorious thing going on. So on the cross, in God's seeming absence, He was working the greatest thing imaginable. He was purchasing a people for Himself. And no one had any idea what was going on. God was working His good plan in the silence of the crucified Christ. So in the midst of desperation and in the midst of depression, look to the crucified Lord Jesus and see God's great love and compassion towards you. That He gave His only Son to pardon your sin. And as you behold the crucified Christ, remember that God is at work even in times when He seems far away. Remember the testimony of Elijah, that God is present in the absence, and be comforted knowing that our God reigns, and He will never leave you nor forsake you. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being gracious to us in the midst of our despair and depression. Thank You for for showing us that You cared for Elijah and that You loved him. And that for those of us who are united to Christ by faith, that you care for us the same way. That you're not a cross-armed, angry father with us, but that you love us dearly. So much so that you sent your son to die for us, to purchase us for yourself. Holy Spirit, wrap us up in the love of Christ. Speak to us through the scriptures so that we can know that God is indeed with us, though it seems like the world is crashing down around us. Help us to trust. Give us a zeal for you that we would persevere no matter how we feel and trust to these great and glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.